their paths crossed like two hot wires. We are just about the friendliest folks you'd ever want to meet. That's Bonnie. I'm sorry, I was looking for Maude. Everyone has the right to make an ass out of themselves. You can't let the world judge you too much. That woman, she took my car. This is Bonnie and Maude, the film podcast, with Xenia Yarosh and Eleanor Kagan. Uh, yeah, so I am just insanely excited about this episode right now. Um, this is Bonnie and Maud. I'm Eleanor Kagan. And this is Xenia Yarosh. And I don't know. I, I One thing I love doing on this podcast, we are a film podcast. One thing I love doing so much is kind of going back to those things that we loved as teenagers. And maybe we, as as grown-ass women have sort of been embarrassed of loving them. Um, I love reclaiming that and then exploring the obsession. Yeah, sort of like looking back through our teenage eyes, but also like analyzing it a little bit. Um, We have a large scope of cinema that we're fans (laughs) of. (laughs) But nothing touches the heart so much as that which we loved as teenage girls. So I am gleeful to tell you that we are talking about... Titanic. Yeah, enter recorder solo that we all played in music class. Um, and I'm so delighted to welcome our guest for this episode. Uh, she's an artist and a filmmaker, and she is working on a shot-for-shot remake of Titanic. Uh, Claudia Bitrin, welcome. Hello. Thank you. Thank you, Eleanor. Thank you, Xenia. I'm so excited. And we are releasing this episode on the same day that the Titanic herself sank, April 15th. Maybe don't say that part with such glee. (laughs) (laughs) She sank on April 15th of uh, 1912. And uh, so we figured it would be appropriate to release this on the same day. Um, It's also tax day. If you're listening to this and you haven't done your taxes. Oh, right. Okay. Maybe you're (laughs) fucked. I don't know. (laughs) Um, So... I want to know both of your Titanic stories. Claudia, can you tell us your Titanic story? Sure. So I, I was uh, I was living in Santiago in Chile when Titanic was released. And it was a um, summer vacation and I was with my family in, uh, at the beach in Valparaiso. And uh, there was one movie theater on the coast playing Titanic. It had just two little rooms. It was a very like low-budget theater, uh, El Cine Olimpo. And there was a four-block line of people desperate underneath the sun, hot, and waiting to walk into the movie. And um, so I did that line for hours. I arrived there, I remember, like at 5 a.m. and did that line. And then when I finally made it into the this tiny little movie theater, I was so excited. I have a very good seat in the middle of the theater. And the movie started and it was, I knew, I knew before I, I, right when I saw the initial part of the movie, you know, I knew that it would be an epic moment. And then I did that huge line like four more times. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Then obviously got the VHS tape and I've seen the the film more than 500 times. What? Holy Oh my God. (laughs) 
<laughs> that blows my mind, Claudia. Yes. Well, I know it back and forth, everything. Well, you must because you are making this note perfect shot for shot remake of the movie. I can impersonate a part of the movie later if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. Okay. <laughs> um, so we are about the same. We are the same age. Um, mm-hmm. So we were both uh, tender tweens when this movie came out. Um, I think, well, you were, I think you were 11 and I, I was 10. You were 10. Yeah. Yeah. And you were 11. I was 11. And I was a tiny bit older. I think I was 13. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. yeah. And uh, I saw this movie in theaters three times. Uh, and I was at this winter camp. It was like a summer camp during the winter. It was like two weeks. And I must have already seen it because I had this Leonardo DiCaprio poster that I brought with me. Um, and I was I was looking on... Wait, you brought with you <laughs> to like have in the seat next to you? <laughs> no, to camp, to have on my oh, wall, to okay. have on the wall. All right. I thought you brought it to the theater. She was like <laughs> sobbing on the poster. <laughs> I had a hundred percent full on Leo mania. I was obsessed. What about you, Kazan? Uh, as I've indicated on this podcast previously, <laughs> I was a bit of a cynical, very serious <laughs> child. Uh, so I don't remember the circumstances of seeing it the first time. I th- I think it was like I. I don't know, maybe I went with my parents. I definitely didn't go with my friends the first time. And I was like, okay, this is very popular. I guess it was all right. (laughs) And then (laughs) the second time around, I think it was several months later, a group of my friends um, from seventh grade were like, we want to go see it. And I kind of went along in my perspective for academic reasons, you know, to uh, take a closer look at this uh, film that was sweeping the nation. Um, And towards the end, I was like, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. And I started weeping intensely. And I was like, it's only because of the music. It's not because of the love story. (laughs) Um... Not Celine Dion, of course. It's the uh, instrumental mm-hmm. bits of it that James really Horner. affected me. Yeah. Um, and I think like a week or two later, I ended up buying the tape of the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would kind of play it in secret because I just, I thought I was like too good for this movie, even though it it really did affect me. And like watching it now again, I realized that it's actually... Yes, it's a very popular film, but it's also really good. Mm -hmm. Like, the acting in it is amazing, and um, it's operatic, but it's... It's an epic. It's a modern-day epic. You were not alone in feeling and having felt above this movie when it came out. Everyone expected it was going to be a massive failure, because James Cameron was this, like, megalomaniacal director and it was the most it expensive movie ever budget. made it was supposed to be re- released during the summer it got bumped to the winter because of the special effects yeah and even afterwards it became popular but it was like such a it was always framed like oh all these teenage girls are seeing it over and over because of leo and i didn't want to be lumped in with that mm-hmm. so i pushed away any feeling that i had for it because it was looked down upon. Yep. Um, whereas, like, Star Wars, just as an example, mm-hmm. is such a popular film that was basically, like, 
heavily made popular by the love of teenage boys is considered, you know, an overall epic. Everyone should see a it. A cult film. Yeah, mm-hmm. a cult film. Mm-hmm. And um, there's definitely an element of sexism in that. Yeah, I mean, the common narrative about this movie is that a bunch of teenage girls got obsessed with Leo and uh, flooded the theaters. But maybe rewatching this as an adult now, and maybe you guys experienced this also, maybe the obsession a tiny bit uh, was also with this woman who is an amazing protagonist and a great, strong female character, Rose. She did a wonderful job as an actress in that film. Kate Winslet. Uh-huh, yes. I, she's very um, particular and very precise with her emotions on, on camera. And I really love the scene where she's in the corridor and she's about to get the axe. <gasps> yes. But she's desperate in that, in the, in that corridor. She's and when out she, of breath. She's panicked. I, I, when I was acting that part of the film... Um, I really studied her facial expressions and there's a part where the light starts coming low and there's this like the sound of the ship and her breath starts going faster like and 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 this the light goes down and then you can see her eyes with with um a little bit of tears and she's shaking and so I those little gestures Mm -hmm. are so good and and I want to in my film I want those things that I love about her acting to be enhanced. It was that moment in particular that I remembered that this movie was made by the man who gave us, well, not the first time, but the second time, gave us Ripley mm-hmm. uh, in Aliens mm-hmm. and Sarah Connor mm-hmm. in Terminator. Mm-hmm. Like, Cameron loves strong female characters and putting I don't, them... I don't think it was actually Cameron. I think I... Not, recently... not Alien. Yeah. Aliens. Aliens. The second one. Yeah. The second oh, one. Okay. Yeah, Ridley mm-hmm. Scott did the first one. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so he didn't invent Ripley but he carried Ripley forward in her Mm -hmm. next story yeah putting these women in peril and watching them conquer their their situation be passive in there in Avatar too like the same thing Mm Zoe Sultana I mean that exact moment where Rose smashes the glass to get the axe to save Jack Mm -hmm. is amazing she's not he is the damsel in distress mm-hmm. and she is fighting water and possible electrocution she punches a guy <laughs> she punches a guy in the sex scene too when they're in the car um rose has this mother posture <laughs> and yeah okay so they they finish okay they're both like okay wow i love they you a so little bit shaky they're insanely and, sweaty <laughs> and she, she says you're trembling yes and he says I'll be all right. And then she puts her his head against um, her chest mm-hmm. in this like very like a if Leo's a baby in that scene. It's crazy. <laughs> Leo was a baby in this uh-huh. movie. That, that's why I put um, a ten year old um, boy sometimes as Leo in my film because I really feel that Leo is not like this man during the whole movie. Mm-hmm. He he's a little bit of a teenage girl as well, and. When I was looking at Leo when I when I was a teenager, I was also, I think, looking back now, I was looking at how beautiful his bangs were mm-hmm. or how like, much I he looked like, you know. We wanted to be Leo as much as we wanted him. Yes. Like, mm-hmm. yes. there's definitely a femininity about his face and mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a boyishness, but it's kind of gender neutral 90s androgynous yeah Mm -hmm. he's so beautiful and i mean she is so beautiful Mm -hmm. and they're like 
practically children. I mean, they're they were 20 and 21 when they filmed this mm-hmm. and we're watching them fall in love on a doomed mm-hmm. ship. There was no chance this movie was going to fail. Watching this movie now made me realize how we don't see rounder women on screen anymore. Like, not even, like, that she was all that curvy, but she has a really full face. I don't know. She must be, like, a size 10 or 12 in it. And I just, I've forgotten what that looks like in a movie. Mm -hmm. Um, She is such a, like, a human looking i don't like using the word normal but like her body looked like other bodies of people that i know and it looked like it was like more relatable to me than yeah yeah that's why actresses we see mm -hmm, that's why you can live vicariously through that this character who is like more human more the only thing i want is to see her in person and look at how 3d she is like (laughs) yeah touch her arm or her like um shoulder you know like see feel that depth of the body yeah did any of you guys see this movie when it was re-released in 3d a couple of years ago no 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 i was busy working on britney (laughs) (laughs) so okay you just brought up something that i really am dying to talk to you about claudia and that is the fact that you played a britney spears impersonator on the chilean version of american idol (laughs) tell us about that And that this actually led to your making of this Titanic film, right? Yes. Okay. Yes, it's all connected. <laughs> I must know more. Okay. So uh, this, uh, I'm a painter. Um, I formed as a painter. My undergrad in Chile was painting mostly. And uh, w- one day there was this open call on TV for um, star- like uh, celebrity impersonators. And they were calling out for Michael Jackson's, Justin Bieber's, Celine Dion's, Britney Spears. And I thought um, that I was a very big fan of Britney Spears. And it could be a good, like, social experiment to go to the auditions um, dressed as Britney Spears. Yeah. But I, I never thought I would go into the it was competition. Just for fun. Just for fun. To, uh-huh. For curiosity, most yeah, of it. Yeah, You know, to see what Britney Spears fans look like in Chile. Uh-huh. And... A week later, I got this um, call. Hey, this is uh, the producer from Mi Nombre Es, and we want to tell you that you we selected you and one other Britney Spears to go to the competition on live TV. Wow. Oh, my God. What was being on the show actually like? Insane. It was being like if you were stoned. I mean, <laughs> it was... Talk- or in a dream. <laughs> like my best friend was Michael Jackson suddenly. He was teaching me how to be a good pop star. And then I had my other friend, um, Dalia. There's a bunch, Justin Bieber, um, Camilo Sesto. I'm just thinking about the ones that are, are Spanish. But, oh, I was really friends with Amy Winehouse. <laughs> One day when I had to go live for the first time, they said... Okay, Brittany, it's your turn. And this producer, producer grabbed me by the arm, and we were walking on this, like, 40-feet-long dark corridor, and while we were walking, they were putting headphones on me, lipstick, giving me water, uh, spraying water on my face, then powder, and then they pushed me out through the, this uh, wow. curtain, and I was on stage in front of the jury. Oh, my like, God. this jury that, you know, here is... Um, Christina Aguilera or whatever, you know, but there it was uh, three very famous uh, Chilean um, Mm -hmm. pop stars that I really admired and they were there. So being on the show, how did that lead to you deciding to remake Titanic? 
I, I was on the on that TV show, and then I went to grad school for painting. And my grad school teachers, who were amazing, I'm, I'm in love with all of them. They were always um, pushing me to tr blend the painting and this other stuff that I was doing, all the video things that I've been working on and the Britney things. And after like a bunch of epic failure, weird experiments with video and performance, I said, okay, I'm just going to grab the problem by the balls and remake all of Britney Spears' videos myself and see how that feels and how that turns out. And visually, what does that look like? Yeah. Yeah. I started remaking things and inventing trailers for movies that don't exist based on popular culture. And then one day I was working at the restaurant here in New York. I work at a restaurant. And I thought, what is the most like epic remake or epic work or th something that will communicate to a larger audience, you know, to explain people what I feel about being a fan or being critical about being a fan. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, I'll just grab the first thing that comes to mind. And it was Titanic. Watching your Britney Spears video remakes, and you've done like over 20 of them. Yes. Um, I saw myself as a teenager doing those dance moves in my bedroom in the mirror after taping the videos off MTV and watching them for hours and learning the dance moves. I saw, and this is my interpretation, but I saw like kind of this full circle release of being a fan as a teenager and actually getting to use that as fuel to put yourself in that space. That's a very powerful feeling. I mean, MTV had that show where you would get to star in your own version of whatever your favorite music video was. Mm -hmm, I think it was mm -hmm. called, it wasn't made, was no, it? No, it's called um, uh, the, the video, wait. Uh, <laughs> come on. What? How? Oh, I don't remember. I was thinking about it this morning. I think about it every day. It's called... Uh, I must have not Making the video. Cable. Making the video. Making the video. <laughs> Literally yes. the mm -hmm. easiest name to remember. Like that the one where, where she's I'm a slave for you. Do you remember that one? Of course. Mm -hmm. And the um Christine Aguilera's mm -hmm. uh, Come On Over Baby. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> Was there any of that like teenage desire of inhabiting your favorite star's life? Did that go into Titanic too? Like becoming Rose, being Kate Winslet yes. in Titanic? Definitely. That is the same feeling that made me do the Britney things is more, it's the same feeling, but more articulated, more articulate in the, in this project of Titanic. Um, but also not only my teenage view of that film, it's the teenage view of everyone else, because I'm, I'm trying to include as many people as possible. I have, I've worked with 300 actors now and wow. more than 20 cameramen and sound people and production assistants and painters and everyone seems to be living the same um recreation of the movie you know mm -hmm. like it's memory and it's uh, this collective memory that is moving the project and mm -hmm. yeah wow fandom is really powerful it's a it's a powerful memory creator um re-watching the movie last night I realized that, and for better or worse, I, I realized how much of this experience of watching this movie and being part of the Leo fandom and the Titanic fandom has still remained in my head. For example, uh, <laughs> my cohort and I that watched the movie last night were very excited to watch Propeller Guy, right? Mm -hmm. You guys know what I'm talking Propeller about. Guy. Propeller oh! Guy. Propeller <laughs> Guy. Yeah, uh. he's... 
It's I, the worst. Re- I remember <laughs> Propeller Guy. Uh, being, everybody wants to be Propeller I Guy, love, by the way. Of course they do. <laughs> but I, re- for some reason, I had this little like musical thing in my head of Billy Crystal at the Oscars mm-hmm. in 98 singing Propeller Guy no, to the tune of Gilligan's Island. And I was like, <laughs> I know in his monologue he did the Gilligan's Island bit with Propeller Guy. Mm-hmm. And they were like, what? And then I found it on YouTube. And it's true. Like, why? Why is that in my brain mm-hmm. after all of these years, yes. after almost 20 years? I don't know. <laughs> yes. And it's in everybody's brain. Everybody that I say, oh, do you want to act in the movie? Yeah, I remember that part where this person hits a propeller. Can I be that? (laughs) How many Leos have you had in this movie? Uh, Up until today, 31. (laughs) Oh my God. 31 Leos. It depends on each scene. Like some scenes, I have a Leo that looks more, you know, uh, buff. Some other scenes, it's a Leo that is more like a girl. Some scenes, I have a girl as a Leo. Um, uh, Sometimes I have a little boy. Sometimes it's an old man. Wow. It just varies. So the only constant is Rose, which is you. Yes. And also James Cameron, which is me too. I think part of being an adolescent is being a fan because like you don't quite know who you are yet. So a lot of teenagehood is imitating other people, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. whether it's a character from a book or like your sibling or your parent or whatever. And so, yeah, like, (laughs) um, I think you recreating these things like taps into a larger thing of like finding our identity. Fandom is such a potent connector, you know? Um, When you meet someone who is a fan of a thing that you love, you automatically have something to talk about and discuss. Mm -hmm. I think you forge a much deeper connection with something that you love and with someone who similarly loves something than connecting over your mutual hatred of something right and it's that it's that earnestness being a fan and talking to another fan makes this positive thing happen and this is something that I I I was at a lecture in the past residency I went to in um Skohegan this um artist residency uh one of the lecturers was Simon Critchley and uh he was talking about uh his fandom towards uh David Bowie Mm -hmm. and then um we were all asking questions and things and I I asked if a fan uh was more happy (laughs) is a fan happier and he was like uh yeah he answered immediately like yes and because of the nature of a fan there's community there no so much about what they love that mm-hmm. they can talk about it. Yeah, because fans inevitably become the academics of the thing that they love and mm-hmm. they study. Yeah, Tumblr is the perfect place for fandom to play out. And I'm always trying to fight against this idea that I see in so much of cultural criticism that I read today, which is that if this is a thing that teen girls love, it is inherently devoid of value. And I see that so much. I see that with One Direction, with Selena Gomez, with Taylor Swift, with anything that young women, young girls love, for some reason, adults think that that makes them valueless. I mean, take uh, Zayn Malik leaving One Direction and Girls are devastated over it. And those are fucking valid feelings. What they're feeling is real. What things will they be thinking in 10 more years about this um, craziness that this boy leaving the band means, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think it's also just telling girls that what they're feeling at a very potent age is incorrect or they shouldn't be feeling. I mean, and then it's also 
I don't know. It just takes that stupid attitude that like whatever teen girls like is wrong. But teen girls were obsessed with the Beatles. They were obsessed with Jane Austen and Emily Dickinson and Mm -hmm. so many other important people in in our culture. Um, So I'm really interested in the idea pointed out by uh, Slate's Dana Stevens in a great piece she wrote about Titanic that every conversation about Titanic winds up being about money, mm-hmm. how much it made, the box office records that it broke. And so much about the movie is about class and about the haves and the have-nots and the rich and the poor, crossing class boundaries, new money versus old money. Mm-hmm. I'm so interested in the fact that your remake of it is specifically low budget. It's DIY. It, it's very handmade. Um, you're creating everything yourself. Is that something that you've thought about while making this movie? Yes, but I'm doing it with zero dollars, zero. Um, so everything, <clears throat> everything that I'm interested about is how movies work. But then also like the DIY nature of it is very important um, in terms of the the people that are that I'm working with, because uh, they don't know how to act. Most of them don't know how to act. Most of them don't know how to paint or to film. And so this collective effort of remaking a scene that we all remember is um, a, a, a specific DIY that is more related to um, memory, not too much to money, but of the memory of this spectacle. It's the same as like when when I watch my footage and see a person that is um, acting as, uh, you know, Billy Zane, I think think, uh, oh, this is how that human being feels the movie. Mm -hmm. Is this human way of watching the movies. So another thing that was a surprise to me upon rewatching this movie as an adult, um, in addition, besides the fact that more of this movie is from Rose's perspective than Jack's perspective, is um, the actual meaning of I'll Never Let Go. And I have no idea why this just was lost on me, but when, maybe, here, I'll play the clip of the scene where that comes from. I'm so cold. Listen, Rose. You're gonna get out of here. You're gonna go on. And you're gonna make lots of babies. And you're gonna watch them grow. You're gonna die an old, an old lady, warm in her bed. Not here. Not this night. Not like this. Do you understand me? Mm-mm. I feel my body. You must promise me that you'll survive. That you won't give up. No matter what happens. No matter how hopeless. Promise me now, Rose. And never let go of that promise. I promise. Never let go. I will never let go, Jack. I'll never let go. So throughout the whole movie, this theme of you jump, I jump, don't let go of my hand. Trust me. Trust me. That's playing out. And I always thought... 
I'll never let go, Jack, meant I'll never let go of you. But no, it's I'll never let go of the promise I've made to you to do whatever it takes to survive. Oh my God. It's so much about her autonomy and her becoming an independent woman. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not about their eternal youthful love, as romantic as that is. Like, one of the final shots is we see her riding a horse at Coney Island, which is Mm -hmm. something they talked about. Flying a plane. Flying a plane. And it's like all these amazing things that she felt like she couldn't do as a rich girl engaged to this guy who was very conservative, um, to put it mildly. (laughs) Wait, can we just take a moment of appreciation for Billy Zane's performance in this movie? He's so wonderfully over the top. His wig, (laughs) his wig, his eyeliner. Mm -hmm. He basically started the men with eyeliner trend. Wait, we have to go back to this part of the never let go because um, I just remember this Zizek part in the um, um, Perver's Guide to Ideology when he speaks about this. Have you? Do you remember this? He he speaks about um, how this romantic love that was happening, young beautiful people. and, and then ends in this terrible tragedy. The iceberg we've always seen as this tragedy. Mm-hmm. But what the true tragedy would have been is them jumping out of the ship together to New York and then ha- making out or having sex for like three weeks and then realizing that this useful that thing would, was the real. That would have been the real tragedy. Like I totally thought about mm-hmm. that today. Like she would have lived a very different life. So, so it was this ideology it was like never let go of this ideology of being strong. I think. Yes. And, and living life to the fullest. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm yes. emotional about how empowering that is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, me too. Every day. <laughs> it's I, I, The parts that I cried at this film as a teenager and the parts that I got wistful at watching this as an adult so different I you know as a kid of course I cried when Leo died and when she lets go of him and he sinks into the water you know what she takes his cold dead hand off of her hand and she's like I love you but bye yeah bitch does what she has to do to survive it's amazing and at the same time all this thing has another side that is like the hate and the irritation that this movie produces me and us like mm-hmm. yeah at the same time as all these values or, or also like pop formulas that we're so used to and why are they so affecting why are they affecting me and this thing makes me angry and this is like the other 50 percent. like yeah. <laughs> to be truth is 50 percent of love there, there's a schmaltziness to it yes. oh my god like, yes. the other side is just it. hate i hate it i hate uh, yeah. everything the dialogue is awful <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. the dialogue is terrible yeah. you would think that for like a movie that went through this much time and people they would have uh. gotten some better dialogue writers into it my heart was pounding the whole time was the most erotic moment of my life, up until then at least. So what happened next? You mean, did we do it? Eleanor, you sent me the alternative ending to the film. Oh, oh my, my God. God. It's and awful. Like, I'm so I mean, glad they didn't put that in the movie. Obviously, Jesus. they were smart enough to cut that out, but that really like brought yeah. forth you know, how awful, especially the modern day scenes were and how poorly written and like... Mm -hmm. Let's play Mm -hmm. a little clip of uh, (laughs) the dialogue. Of the the alternate ending. Of the alternate ending. Yes. Emma, please don't! Don't come any closer. I'll drop it. 
You had it the entire time. You know, dealing with logic here, I know that, but please think about this for a second. Oh, I've thought about this for years. And I've come all the way here to put it back where it belongs. Wait. Just let me hold it in my hand. You look for treasure in the wrong place, Mr. Lovett. Only life is priceless. And making each day count. This sucks. <laughs> Cameron just really hammers you over the head with the themes of the movie mm -hmm. right there. That was maybe the best choice was to get rid of that. And there's other things that, okay, so there's love and hate and things, but there's also um, embarrassing moments like don't relate to hate, don't relate to love, but that I see how our past was or how our teenage fashion was, <laughs> you know, when she is her hair, everything is about this. Like the she looks like waist. a pop star. He, they both look like a pop star. Pop stars like they do. Backstreet Boys, Nick Carter, and also Jerry Halliwell, the mm -hmm. Spice Girl. They just are these characters that we were loving. Yes, and it makes me embarrassed sometimes. I just need to laugh about it in some scenes. Yeah, it's always like going back to that pop place and thinking about mm -hmm. what we were. Oh my God, the cheese factor is amazing. I actually, if anyone is interested in going deeper down the rabbit hole of uh, Celine Dion and My Heart Will Go On, uh -huh. I highly recommend. Um, the book Let's Talk About Love by Carl Wilson. It's part of the 33 and a Third series. <laughs> the subtitle is A Journey to the End of Taste. And what it is, is looking at popular culture, a popular icon like Celine Dion, who has sold incredible numbers of albums, but is also so reviled by so many. And just balancing those two opposing forces and finding meaning in it and the meaning of bad taste or having good taste in bad taste and mm -hmm. as lovers of bad movies all of us uh understand what that anxiety is mm -hmm. like yeah totally. i was honestly very surprised that the song does not play until the credits yeah like the whole time i'm like waiting for it and there are hints at it because like the theme plays throughout at key moments but like you do not hear her voice until like the like credits. 10 seconds into the credits, mm -hmm. um, which is amazing because that song was everywhere for years after the movie came out. Mm -mm. <laughs> but that would have been weird. It would have been like the, the end scene. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if, if she would have started singing right when like Rose gets naked and she's dry. <laughs> oh, no. I know that would have been terrible. <laughs> oh, my God. One of the central moments is, uh, of course, at the 1998 Oscars, you have Celine's My Heart Will Go On. She does this huge performance where she's like on the bow of the ship. And then nominated in the same category was Elliot Smith's Miss Misery from Goodwill oh. Hunting. And he comes out in this white tuxedo in the middle <laughs> or white, white suit uh, and just sits in the middle of the stage by himself and plays the song. And it's like, damn. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing that did bother me about this film was there are so many times when Rose during and Jack during their courtship, she says, stop and no and wait and mm -hmm. leave me alone. Mm -hmm. And I know he's like this roguish guy who's supposed to bring her out of her comfort zone and rescue yeah. her from her like But that's a socialized... bad message to send to yeah, men. Yeah, her socialized upbringing. But exactly, like 
I know it's okay for them in the film because they're meant to be together, but I, yeah, I, I feel like it sends a weird message about not taking no for an answer and for young girls that their lack of consent doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. I mean, in the end, um, she does return to him by choice. I I remember, Mm -hmm. um, when she goes to the front of the ship. Yeah. She's like, I changed my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, and she comes to him. She does. I mean, uh, she calls so many of the shots. She's the one who suggests the new drawing session. She's the one who seduces him mm-hmm. to have sex. I mean, she Rose is really calling the shots. But just thinking about watching this movie as a 12-year-old and having those images ingrained, I just, mm-hmm, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, she she was playing a part where she she had to say no. She uh, her first reaction to any of these things would have been like, "Oh no, Jack," when he says, "Oh come on, I'll show you." How I'm to spit. a lady. Oh, that's disgusting. <laughs> but these things are her inner mom, mm-hmm. her inner mother that is like, "Oh, Rose," you know. Uh-huh. It's she's coming out of that shell, um, which I guess at some point we absorbed as well. Mm-hmm as oh no not this but also we were feeling the energy of that woman that comes out and just does Mm -hmm. whatever she wants i know it's tricky i I don't know that i quite uh, processed the extent to which this film emphasizes the disparity of economic class oh yeah um, Mm -hmm. let's talk until watching it this time there's just there's so much about, you know, the poor people being at the bottom of the ship that begins to flood early on and they are locked. <laughs> like they're not even allowed to go on deck to try to get on boats and they're not enough boats. And it's not even it's not even rich versus poor. It's types of rich versus poor because you have Molly Brown, the unsinkable Molly Brown, the new played rich. by Kat. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's the nouveau riche and they think she's really vulgar and they don't want her around. The, the old rich don't want her around. Uh, what I think very important about the class situation of this film is like mm-hmm. it, there's a parallel between the economic class and the um, importance of acting in a film. So like the extra people that get the third class titles. literally. Yeah. yeah. And, and to me, that's so interesting because it's like every day you can find this in different places. Like who is the third class here really? Mm-hmm. Or who is the third class in this concert or who is, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it's this other thing that is related to fandom mm-hmm. and to what is valuable. Like is the elite, the art world, and the third class is the third class what popular culture and there's so many tiers inside those like the art world and comic-con and Mm -hmm. what is worthwhile and who is being a fan in a like intelligent good enough way Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. and who is allowed to judge Mm -hmm. it's also a matter of access too i mean if you are 13 and you want to see taylor swift it's not cheap and if you can't afford if your family can't afford those tickets you have less access than the families that can afford very expensive tickets um which is you know why something like tumblr or the online fandoms make it so much more democratic than it was i mean even in 1997 there were fan sites but it wasn't quite to the extent as it was today and so access was so much more limited Mm -hmm. The most disturbing part of Titanic isn't actually the boat hitting the iceberg or even like the boat starting to flood. It's just like the mania that takes over the people and like people are shooting each other. They're hitting each other like 
you know, they're using oars to like push each other away. Um, they refuse to go back and save people they know are drowning when there's obviously room in the lifeboat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Information is privilege. Privilege is information in this sense. You know, Rose is told by Victor Garber character that the ship is definitely going to sink which is at that point when he tells her that in the film that is not common knowledge he tells her only tell Mm -hmm. those you must yes Mm -hmm. and so because she has that privilege she finds out this information and that's terrifying mr andrews i see i saw the iceberg and i see it in your eyes yeah that's what she (laughs) says i'm sorry i didn't build you a good ship rose yeah (laughs) That's strong and true. Well, that's it's really intense. I mean, Rose is obviously so much smarter than everyone around her. She points out really early on in the movie that there are definitely not enough lifeboats. Yeah, She's I like, can't believe I did the math. she like did the math. That's my favorite line. Yes. She says, "I, I did, did the math." I want to see her in her cabin, that. like doing the math of these lifeboats. Oh, yeah, I mean, obviously, the whole point in the movie is choosing love over money and the uselessness of greed and of course that's why gloria stewart throws the heart of the ocean necklace over the side at the end of the movie what did you guys think of that as kids did that infuriate you the first time you saw this movie her throwing the thing in the water yeah oh i you're gonna hate me i thought it made so much sense but I, mean, I mean, totally do not yeah. hate you for that yeah, opinion. Okay. I, I made it. I yeah. just think it's a very ugly necklace. Oh yeah. Well, I have it. I have the imitation. I bought it on Amazon. <laughs> yes. It's only seven dollars. Everyone <laughs> can buy it. I loved. Um, I read it that at the Oscars the ne- that year, um, Celine Dion wore a version of the necklace that was worth two point two million. Gloria oh, Stewart wore another version that was worth <laughs> twenty million. What? <laughs> So so there's class in that yes. too. Yes. But Holy like the, so 2.2 million plus 20 million it's like 10% of what the movie costs. Oh, I know. No, or right? The movie that's costs insane. 200 million dollars. But that's crazy to me that only the jewelry that comes out of an event that came out from this movie would cost yeah, 10% of the movie. I don't I know. know. It's crazy. It's wow. so crazy. Titanic is crazy. I love it and I hate it and I love it. It's like, (laughs) that's what makes it so fun to talk about. Claudia, when can we see your movie? What is sort of your projected, you know, premiere? Mm -hmm. So up until today, I've made half of the movie, edited everything. Um, And I think I will have it finished for, I have a solo show in next year in 2016 at the Museum of Visual Arts in Santiago in Chile. And so that is when I'll premiere the the film. But I want to bring it also to, well, New York and where I live, you know, and and other places. I want to screen it in movie theaters. Where can people find more information about you? Where Mm -hmm. can people keep up with your work? I have a website. It's my name.com, ClaudiaBitran.com. B-I-T-R-A-N. Mm-hmm. Claudia, B-I-T-R-A-N. And then uh, on Instagram, I'm ClauBitran, like C-L-A-U-B-I-T-R-A-N. And there's I, I upload different um, images of the process of making the movie. So you can follow me there. Um, Does that website also link up with your Vimeo? Because I've, I've uh-huh. watched some good... Uh, bits of your work on Vimeo. <laughs> yes, so the, the, on, on my website is all my video work except 
Titanic because I only uh, put photos, stills of, of, you know, of the movie. But um, I will be happy to share with any person that wants to see more um, the password to the Vimeos, the, the Vimeo uh, trailers for Titanic. It is amazing to me the thought that people who are younger than us, who were not teens in the late 90s, maybe haven't seen Titanic. I can imagine it seeming like this long slog of an epic to get through Citizen Kane (laughs) (laughs) yeah um so if you haven't seen this movie I urge you to go see it and then call us um me and uh Ksenia uh we have a phone in voicemail box that you can leave us messages and then maybe we'll play them on the show um and that number is 530-MOD-79 so that's 530-628-3300 Seven nine, And we want to hear about your Titanic stories. And we're actually going to end the episode today with a bunch of Titanic stories that um, people called in and told us about uh, on this line. And, uh, you know, it is just, it is w- one of the biggest pop cultural phenomenons of all time. And I, I feel like we could record another few hours of discussion on it. Um, so please tell us, tell us your experiences. This was wonderful. Yes. Thank you, Claudia. (laughs) Thank you so much. I had fun. I was looking forward to it. I'm going to be singing My Heart Will Go On (laughs) for days. (laughs) That's great. Um, Thank you. Let's post uh, links to some of the articles and uh, Leo fan tumblers that we mentioned on the show um, on our website at bonnieandmod.com and on our Tumblr, bonnieandmod.tumblr.com. Uh, we're on Facebook and Twitter at Bonnie and Mod. And uh, coming up, our next episode is going to be a special Mother's Day episode. And we are nothing if not James Cameron fans, apparently, because we will be discussing aliens. Uh, with the wonderful hosts of Mother, a podcast. Uh, So check them out and then stay tuned for that in May. Mm -hmm. For Bonnie and Maude, I'm Eleanor Kagan. And I'm Ksenia Yarosh. Thank you guys so much for listening. I saw Titanic maybe when I was in 14 or 15, like early high school on a date and it was terrible in every way I sat there stewing the entire time how mad I was that I got talked into seeing this movie everyone dies at the end so you knew that that was going to happen so that's not like the greatest movie to like take a girl to when you want to make out afterwards because everyone's dead and then she's just sad my father used to buy me DVDs overseas in China when he was traveling there for business. And uh, I kept the one for Titanic because it, it has a really ridiculous description uh, that I always thought was pretty funny. It says, 20th century, the best of all luxury and safe mailer, Titanic sinked when herself first sailing. Only a little passengers survived. After a hundred years later, one explorer discovered a pencil sketch. It show on a young girl wearing a invaluable jewelry. He visiting the young girl of the picture then know a loving story of wretched and beautiful. I was too young to see Titanic in theaters when it came out, or at least my parents thought that I was too young because of that scandalous scene, the one with the hand in the car, which is not the most, I guess it's, that's not really scandalous at all, but it's like that came to epitomize why I was too young to go see it in theaters.
I was the unsinkable Molly Brown of seventh grade. I was overly outgoing, a jokester, and someone who didn't seem to know my place while navigating the social hierarchy of my middle school. I needed to go to the mall for two reasons. The first reason was to buy more Kotex. So I had to lug my haul of tiny vagina pillows around the mall in a basically translucent CVS plastic bag. The second reason I was going to the mall was to see Thai motherfucking Tannic. I was 13, newly a woman, but more newly, I had just moved to a new school. A group of girls from my class are a handful of people behind me in line, and they motion for me to come over and join them. When they ask me who I'm there with, I tell them embarrassedly that I'm alone. Instead of offering to let me sit with them, their leader, Krista Sawyer, snatches my CVS bag out of my hands and starts rifling around, assuming there is candy in the bag. I'm trying to smuggle into the theater, but as you know, there's no candy in the bag, and Chris is confronted with an economy-sized bag of Kotex. I'm disgusted, she lets out a loud ew, then throws the bag out of the line that slides across the tile of the mall's floors and like a giant hockey puck of shame. I got all out of line to retrieve my 50 industrial-sized vagina sleeping bags, then made my way up to the back of the sold-out line. I stifled back tears for the bulk of the movie, but I learned an important lesson that day. I am unsinkable. That is one of the central arguments of this movie is why didn't she move over for Jack? And she couldn't. There was no way. 